Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, last week, we talked to the daughter of Sir Nicholas Winton, a Holocaust rescuer whose actions contributed to the saving of 669 Czechoslovakian Jewish children. And today we have a, the daughter of another Holocaust rescuer. Uh, it's, her name is Jeannie Smith, and her mother is Irene Opdyke who wrote a book called In My Hands. Now, Irene's story is incredible. She was a nursing student in Radom, Poland, when Germany and Russia invaded in September of 1939. And what could one teenage girl do in her situation? Well, in her memoir, In My Hands, Memories of a Holocaust Rescuer, she answers that question. Just like Sir Nicholas Winton, she simply took the opportunities as she saw them to do what she could do. She said, I knew it was a drop in the ocean, but I could not do nothing. Now, after making her way back to the German-occupied territory of Poland to be reunited with her family, she was soon one of the Polish people that was recruited to forcibly work for the Nazis. She was used as one of the many, many slave laborers that the Nazis essentially kidnapped and forced to doing their bidding. So after she was so, so exhausted by the work she was doing in the ammunition factory and fainting at her post, the Nazis decide to move her to a different role, and they had her working, preparing, and serving food at a dining room for German officers. Now, while she was working there, she saw Nazi officers doing awful things like shooting Jewish people in the ghetto through the window of their residence. So the next day, she sneaked out with a small box of food, and she dug a hole under the ghetto fence and placed the food there. When she returned the next morning, the box was empty. So day after day after day, Irene continued to sneak out of the house with food, place it in the small hole under the ghetto fence, and leave it there. The next day, the food would be gone, and she'd repeat the whole thing. She never knew who took the food. To this day, she never knew who it was that she was getting the food to. All she knew was that with all the carnage and atrocity going around her, here was one small thing that she could do. And then she started doing even more. She soon was given the additional task in the, the Nazi officer's residence to overseeing the laundry room. And Jewish workers were busting daily from the ghetto to do a lot of the work there. And then they were sent back to the camp at night. So Irene began smuggling them food so they could take it back to the ghetto to serve people. Because while she was serving in the dining room, she would often overhear the Nazi officer's plans for raids on the ghetto. This information she took down to the laundry room and gave to the Jewish slave laborers who was working there so that they could pass that on to those that were living in the ghetto and they could help to save themselves and their family and their friends. But eventually, of course, as we all know, uh, the raids on the ghetto would turn into one final emptying of the ghetto where all the Jewish people would be shipped off to one of the extermination camps the Nazis had set up to facilitate the Holocaust. But Irene was determined to save as many as she could. One day she drove a wagon into the woods and she had six people hiding in the back. They lived in the woods for months and Irene brought them food and supplies whenever she could. When she could hide more people, she found a perfect opportunity. When she was chosen to be the housekeeper for a high-ranking German officer, and just think about this for a moment, her first task was to oversee the renovations of the villa that he wanted to move into. So what she did was she set aside several rooms in the basement that would be unused and moved seven more of her friends to hide there, hiding Jewish people in the villa of a German officer right under their nose. 
Now, at the end of the war, 14 people, one of the couples, actually had a baby while in hiding were alive because of the hiding places that she had found. Many more were alive because her warnings had given them time to escape the ghetto. Her story is just extraordinary, and I wanted to share her story with you because many, many people have not heard the story of Irene Opdyke. So, uh, a few days ago, I had the chance to have a conversation with her daughter, Jeannie Smith, who actually goes about the country speaking on her mother's story, and this is that conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I read your mother's story quite some time ago, and a number of articles about her as well. And it's quite a fascinating story for a number of reasons. One of the big things I found about your mother's story was that it wasn't just a, a huge network of people who were working to free Jews. It was just one woman doing everything she could. Right. So if, if you could just tell our listeners a bit about your mother's story and what makes it so exceptional. Well... For me, what makes it so exceptional is just what you said. Um, you know, a lot of times history has continued to repeat itself in terms of hate crimes and holocausts and genocides. I mean, it seems like it's always been a part of our world, and, you know, even now. And it's it's so easy to hear about, read about what's going on in the world and think, why doesn't somebody do something, or we should, uh, you know, maybe send the troops in, or whatever, but the fact is, um, and, you know, it, it's my mom's message and one that I try to share, too, that the truth is one person can make a difference. Right. And we've got, you know, a girl that's just out of high school that has gone away to college, and she's on her own without parents, without a home, um, you know, without any relatives, and this war breaks out. And, you know, she gets wrapped up in what's happening, uh, she gets disconnected from her family. She becomes a forced laborer working for the Germans. This is, and in, Poland, this is in Poland in 1939, correct? Right, right, yeah. right. And ultimately, you know, ends up working for a German major um, first at his factory, and uh, you know, he likes her enough that he brings her into his villa as a housekeeper. And you know, through this, all, mom becomes aware of what's happening to the Jews. And she has an opportunity to save the Jews that were working at the factory uh, in the laundry. Uh, these were white-collar people, doctor, lawyer, teacher, um, accountant, you know, people that had lost everything and now were uh, forced laborers uh, working in this camp that my mother served meals at. And um, when she heard about their liquidation of, of them and the entire ghetto, she did something about it. And, you know, what she did was took these people and smuggled them into the basement of this German major's house and hid them there for almost two years, you know, and uh, at definitely at risk to her own life in Poland. You know, all throughout Europe during that time, it, there was huge penalties for helping and aiding a Jew. But in Poland, the penalty was death. And not just for you, for your whole family, your husband, wife, your children, um, you know, everybody. And, uh, you know, she uh, took care of these people, and there certainly was some personal harm for her to do so, but um, yes, she did it. It's interesting, because she was she was only a teenager at the time, right? She was a nursing student in Radom, Poland, when I believe, when Germany Correct. invaded first. And then when she when she first arrived there, why was she specifically drafted to uh, be a forced laborer? Was it just because she happened to be young and Polish and, and available? Um, 
Well, at first she um, she actually joined the partisans when the war first broke out. Uh, they came uh, kind of soliciting people at the college or the nursing school that she was at, and uh, you know she was in the forest as a partisan. Um, but uh, she was uh, caught one day by actually Soviet soldiers who gang raped her and dropped her off at a hospital, um, and uh, she became a prisoner there. The hospital was a Soviet hospital. But anyway, all through that, um, you know, she just was at the wrong place. There was, uh, after she got out of the hospital, she connected with some family, uh, went to church one one Sunday and came out and was surrounded by German soldiers who segregated and separated people. And she, along with other people she didn't know, was put on a truck, taken to the town of Tarnopol, where she was forced to work in an ammunition factory. And that's uh, ultimately where this German major found her. So, it, uh, you know, back then, just being at a certain place, regardless of who you were, whether you didn't have to be Jewish, you know, if if uh, the, the Germans or the Nazis wanted you, you were taken. Right. In her book, she talks about, like, what it was that triggered her actions. And we find this when we look at the history of genocide, and as you mentioned, the history of inhumanity. Often it, it takes people really realizing what it is that's going on uh, before it is that they speak out. And in her book, she describes seeing Nazi officers shooting Jewish people in the ghetto through, through a window where she was working. Correct. Yeah, it was horrific. And actually that was her really her wake-up call on just how bad things were. You know, she said she looked out that window and she saw a mass of people that would be in anybody's neighborhood. She said it would be like if the police would come into your area and take every single person out of the house. There was a cross-section of people from, you know, elderly to the newborns. And, uh, you know, watching one young young mother who was holding on to a child and, uh, you know, watching that uh, soldier grab the baby, you know, threw it up in the air and shoot it, um, it just, you know, I can't imagine how horrific that was. And, um, you know, that was ultimately watching that uh, happen is when she made a vow that if she ever had an opportunity to help, she would. And apparently she had an opportunity to help quite soon thereafter. One of the things that I found really compelling about her story was the fact that at the beginning, she didn't even know who she was helping. She was just leaving food in a box by the fence near the ghetto. Right. And you know it doesn't really matter who you're helping. If you have, if you see a human being in need, you have a choice. And um, you know, I talk to kids all the time in schools and stuff. And again, I repeat what my mom said, and also um, Ellie Vicel is, you know, there's always a moment when a choice is made. And um, you know, if you you ask kids, hey, if you see something that's wrong, uh, bullying that's going on in your school, and you choose to walk down the hall to your class, have you made a, a have you picked a side? You know, and a lot of times kids will say, no, I didn't do anything at all. And it's like, that's a choice. And, you know, every time we choose to walk on by, we've we've chose the size of the perpetrator. So, Right. So tell us about how she escalated, just from, from leaving food outside, outside a ghetto fence all the way to hiding people in the woods, hiding people in the home of the German major she was actually working for as a cook. Uh, engaging in incredibly dangerous uh, feats of daring. Well, you know, she said nothing was ever planned out. You you stumble across some way to help, and then you do what you need to until the next thing comes along. 
and uh, you know because she she got asked a lot you know how did you have the courage to do all that and that's what she said it was never laid out before me all the things that I would have to do you you do one little step at a time and she also said that's how you build up courage it's courage is like a muscle you do one small step to help to intervene on something that's wrong and that muscle just gets a little bit stronger and uh, you know so that that's the best way i can describe it is you know, she just took one thing at a time and did what she felt like she needed to do. What was it like growing up hearing these stories? I did not grow up hearing these stories. You know, when my mom came to the United States, she um, came into Ellis Harbor, and she said she stood on the bow of that boat looking at the Statue of Liberty, and she said she literally put a Do Not Disturb sign up over her memories. She was going to start fresh in a new country and have a, a brand-new beginning. And... Um, she met and married my dad. She became a very well-known and popular interior decorator. She was amazing. She was very elegant. She was very beautiful. And that is all I knew about her until I was about 14. We were having dinner one night, and the phone rang, and my mom got up to answer it. And on the other end of the line was a college student who was doing a phone survey for a report in school, and his topic was the Holocaust never happened. Right. It was just propaganda drummed up by the Jews so that we'd feel sorry for them. And he literally was calling random people to find out what they thought. And she told him what she thought about that. And, you know, I, I sat at the dinner table, and, you know, at first you don't pay much attention to your parents on the phone. But um, after a while, I realized she was telling this amazing story. And when she hung up the phone that night, um, I remember her looking at me and saying, all these years that I've kept silent, I've allowed evil to win. And she said, you know, if, if we don't start talking about this, history can repeat itself. And the biggest shock was that, you know, this was in the 70s, so it wasn't really that long since World War II was over that people were already saying it didn't happen. And right. this was a young person, you know, a college student. Somebody had already polluted this person's mind to think right. that it never happened. Um, so that's that's when I first heard about it. Actually, right. I was you know 14 years old, so I didn't really grow up knowing about it. What and, was it uh, like for for both you and and your father to find out what your mother had been involved in back uh, during the war? It's, it's an incredible story to find out that uh, you know you were sort of uh, through your mother yeah. must have been quite incredible. You know, my dad actually knew about it. It is quite. A, my mom has so many amazing things that happened in her life. When the war was over, she was. Um, she was put in a displaced person camp in Germany, and she was there for two years trying to find her parents and her sisters. Um, and uh, while she was there, there was a group of men from the United Nations who came to do interviews, and there was an American delegate who interviewed my mom. And uh, he could speak English and French. He grew up in Montreal in the summertime. And my mom could speak Polish, German, and Russian and Yiddish. And through an interpreter, she told her story to him, and he's the one who invited her to come to the United States. So about a year and a half later, she comes. She gets into the United States. It takes her five years to become a citizen, and she has a job, and she's in Manhattan having lunch one day. And a man comes up and asks if he can sit next to her. That was the only available seat was right next to her. And as he sits down, he looks at her, and he said, I know you. That was the man who'd interviewed her in the displaced persons camp, and that was my dad. 
and they no, dated for six weeks and got married. So he was the only one in this country who knew her story because he'd interviewed her all those years back. Did she ever come into contact again with anybody anybody that she would, she had helped to rescue during the Holocaust? She, of she did. Um, you know, by the time she started speaking, um, quite a few people uh, had passed away because she was much younger than them. But Fonka uh, Zilberman, um, she came in contact, and of course, Roman Holler, the baby, and um, several other people, Henry Weinbaum. Um, so uh, she did uh, get in contact with them. She either flew to Israel or they came um, to the States to see her. What for you was the most incredible part of your mother's story? Well, you know, I guess it's the fact that my mom, you know, I, I know so much about her, but she was this tiny little woman who never gave up on anything or anyone. She didn't uh, She didn't give up when things were hard. Um, she always found a way around things. She had an amazing inner strength. She had a very strong faith. And, uh, you know, she she was powerful but yet super feminine. So she was like a contradiction. Uh, her, people sometimes say, boy, your mom used to be one tough lady. And it was like, no, she was the most feminine. Picture Zsa Zsa Gabor. That's, that's that's how my mom was, right. soft-spoken, and, you know, if anything, her power was in her femininity, um, but she just kept going and going. She was amazing, so, um, and it never changed. And the other thing that was amazing to me, um, because I'm part of a lot of Holocaust speakers, bureaus, and groups, and granted, I'm a, a child of a rescuer, not a survivor, but my mom had no um, uh, fear issues. Uh, she didn't grow up like so many of the rescuers' children where their parents were like, don't talk to anyone, you know, call me as soon as you get home, make sure the doors are locked. Right. My mom had none of that, no fear, no anger, no, um, um, you know, forgiveness issues um, or anything. She just, uh, she was grateful. The night before she passed away, um, I remember sitting on her bed, and she said how absolutely grateful and thankful she was about her life. Um, you know, and what a great way to finish your life. Right. What happened to her family back in Poland after after the war? Well, during the war, uh, her par her parents, her father was shot and killed. Her mom uh, had a stroke, and the younger sisters were kind of farmed out to relatives and neighbors. They were separated for a little bit. Their schooling was completely disrupted, and uh, you know they grew up quite poor. And uh, eventually, they married, and they kind of lived close together in in you know apartments. Um, I haven't been to Poland, but how it was described is the apartment that they lived in quite you know meager. Uh, they had like plots of grounds where they could grow gardens and and food and things. Um, but the, when Chernobyl went uh, off, it polluted the ground, so her sisters had a lot of health issues and things, but uh, she was reunited with them in the 80s and uh, got to go to Poland, and they all got to come out to California, so I got to meet them, and they've since all passed away, but uh, they were they were great ladies, and it was uh, the joy of her life to be able to be reconnected with them. 
when you go to schools and tell your mother's story, what's what's your goal? What's the message? Besides, besides your mother's story, what are you trying to illustrate from that story for them? Mm, absolutely the fact that um, they can make a difference in their school and in their neighborhood and in their world. You know, it, uh, school bullying has escalated more and more and more. I, I was just at a school where the principal told me that um, – about once a month there is a suicide or attempted suicide that tends to be because of a kid being bullied. So it's it's an epidemic. And, uh, you know, what I want to get across to these kids is, um, you know, I, I believe that we're here for a reason. And it's more than even getting a great education so you can get a great career and have, a, you know, money and a good life. We're connected, you know, and right. that, uh, that human beings matter. And, uh you know, to, to keep their eyes open to how they can help, what they can do, and, you know, to stand up against hate. Because, you know, for all our technology and advancements, we have done a poor job in that area. We really have. Yeah. And your mother's life, of course, can serve as an inspiration for those who are trying to decide what decision to make. Right. You know, and the fact that she was not much older than the typical high school kids that I talked to and, you know, didn't have any resources either and stuff, It, you know, I, I do hope that it sets as an example and that they can remember it. You know, we kids, all of us, not just kids, we need heroes, true heroes, not people that can throw a ball really good or sing a song or something. Right. But, right. So People you know. who have done things that involve self-sacrifice and, and bravery yeah. and courage. But, Right, that encourage us to raise our bar, you know, to reach higher. Absolutely. Well, Dee, thanks so much for taking the time to share the story. Thanks for um, thinking of it. I really appreciate it. It was nice talking with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Jeannie Smith, a, a Holocaust speaker, telling us about the story of her mother, Irene Opdyke, whose uh, what they seemed like small and simple actions escalated into bigger and ever more courageous actions and resulted in the saving of many lives. I think that each and every one of us can take something away from this story and I hope that you were as inspired by her example as I was. This is The Bridgehead. Thanks so much for joining us and we hope you'll join us again next week.